Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Echoes of Empire Beyond Genghis Khan offers a stunning cinematic view of Mongolia's past and present. Film director and novelist Robert H. Lieberman takes us into this vast country, little known by many. It's an intimate portrait of today's Mongolians, as well as a rare and revealing insights into the mind of these former warriors and nomads and the challenges they faced in their post-Soviet world. There's a lot more here. It's also about Genghis Khan and his empire and how it evolved and how it came to be the most powerful empire in the history of mankind. And there's so much here. It's a terrific documentary film called Echoes of the Empire Beyond Genghis Khan. And we're joined today by the director, Robert H. Lieberman. Robert, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Thank you for filling in so much about the history of the Mongol people, as well as the history of Genghis Khan. I only know him mostly through bad movies and really inaccurate characterizations in in media and otherwise. So thank you for that. What put you on to doing this particular documentary film? People keep asking that question and I don't have an answer. I did a film, they call it Myanmar with Aung San Suu Kyi. I did it at the time she was in prison, by the way, she's back in prison. So when I did They Called Myanmar, you weren't allowed to film in Burma. I had always wanted to go into Burma. In fact, it was difficult to get in, but I was working for the U.S. Embassy. I was able to film, you know, clandestinely. I then did a film in Cambodia called Angkor Awakens with their strongman Hun Sen appearing, who, the man who never gives interviews. And I went there because I, uh, for the same reason, it was something that uh, just had piqued my curiosity. I'm a child of the Holocaust, and I was interested in the sort of the after effects of an auto genocide, which occurred with the Khmer Rouge. And then Mongolia, why? Well, sort of like Mount Everest, because it's there. It's different. If you use the word exotic, people get very upset, but I got to tell you, it is exotic. It is different from anything I've ever experienced. And so, look, I'm a novelist. That's how I began many decades ago. And what I do in all these films is I'm giving you a novelist's eye view of a country. It deals with not just the present, but the past and how the past has shaped the present. And I'm always interested in the psychology of the people of a given country. What's going through their heads? How do they think? Well, the Mongolians think very differently than Westerners, especially if you've dealt with them, if you've dealt with them in business. Uh, you know, if you have to have a meeting with a Mongolian, they'll say, yes, yes, lunch. But lunch can mean many things. It could mean today lunch. It could mean tomorrow lunch. It could mean in the afternoon lunch. It could be in the morning, two days later lunch, because uh, they, you never know in Mongolia when a zud, which is of course an extreme cold or a snowstorm will hit and they have to take care of livestock, you know, round up the thousand head. 
So that mentality of the herders has penetrated itself into everyday modern Mongolia. Uh, so how do people think? Well, the Mongolians think differently than us, certainly. And they think of themselves still as warriors. So, yeah, it, yeah. this is what attracted me. I'm also, I live in the country. I live in Ithaca, New York. We have 120 acres and uh, I grow things and I love nature. And if you're in Mongolia, a population of 3 million, this enormous country, you can travel and not see another person. And that's a lure for me, at least. Ulaanbaatar feels post-Soviet. I lived in Czechoslovakia, 89-90, the year of the revolution, one of the few Americans living in the former Czechoslovakia. This has the same feeling of post-Soviet. The buildings, uh, not all, but many of the buildings are Soviet-era buildings, the bridges, whatever. It, it, so it's a very interesting mix of Soviet, ancient, modern. Uh, it's a mishmash, which I find fascinating. How much of the nomadic history of Mongolia informs the current generation? I know that you can be going back a couple of generations. I'm sure the influence was very strong, but in that sort of des desire to be more modern, desire to be of more of the world, this I assume this current generation of people coming up, how much sway does that history have over them? Well, first of all, they were not allowed to, under the Soviets, who killed twenty thousand lamas yeah. on the spot, and they were against religion of any form. You are not allowed to say the name Genghis Khan. They pronounce it Chinggis Khan. Right. Uh, it was outlawed. You could get into trouble in the schools. It wasn't mentioned. Uh, and then 1991 came what they call the revolution, but it really was this collapse of the Soviet empire. And suddenly Genghis Khan jumps to primacy. He was a brutal, brutal empire builder, but a very interesting background. He was essentially an orphan almost. He introduced the idea of laws, of not killing ambassadors, tolerance for religion. Uh, one of our stars of our film is Jack Weatherford, who wrote the book Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. I, you can't minimize the brutality. If you, you know, he would attack cities very cleverly. He would sometimes divert rivers and flood the cities. Generally, if the population of the cities overthrew the royalty and accepted him, uh, they would live in, you know, they would live in peace. But of course, he'd leave. He wouldn't station troops. But if they turned against him, he would return and just wipe out the city. So you didn't mess with Genghis Khan. And his empire stretched all the way from Mongolia through India, through down to present-day Baghdad. It went all the way through Hungary up to the doorstep of Vienna. This was the largest empire, much larger than Alexander the Great, uh, of any conqueror. And it comes from this guy who was an outcast when his father was poisoned and he and his mother had to live on their own. They were outcasts. He comes from nothing. 
In a sense, what's interesting is Genghis Khan was a modest guy. Uh, he, he allowed no statues made to him, no paintings. There are no contemporary paintings of Genghis Khan. And when he died, he was buried anonymously. He did not want people to know where his gravesite was. So this is a very unusual leader. And he united all these warring factions, you know, within Mongolia. How does it manifest itself? Well, I think the males of Mongolia still feel that they are descendants of Genghis Khan and they're tough. But it's a, it's a strange society because it's a place where the women are more educated than the men. This is really a reversal of what we experience. But the question we explored is why is this? And the answer really is that among the herders, you know, they need the boys to essentially take care of the livestock, you know, sheep, goats, and yaks, and camels. And what are you going to do with a girl? Well, okay, send her to school. And so the girls are educated, they go on to the university, and the guys are not to that level. And it's very hard for a Mongolian woman who's educated to find a mate somebody she can talk to on this sort of same educated level, which is, this is a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for filling us in on the history. That really should have been my lead question was to ask you, who is Genghis Khan? Because again, as I said in the introduction, we, at least from my perception and perspective, know him as this kind of murderous, rampaging deliver of of death uh, you know all around wherever he went sort of a scorched earth uh, mentality that's at least how it's been presented and in your film you you describe so much of the of those perceptions are wrong and as you mentioned there's something i think is important and the first vestige of international law came from him as you mentioned uh, outlawed kidnapping women outlawed, elevated the the perception and the position of women and really facilitated the the flow of goods and philosophies back and forth between Europe and the and the so-called East. The influence is profound, and maybe because of some of the things you just mentioned, the fact that he was a modest man, there's no contemporary paintings, he, he was buried in an anonymous grave. There isn't much substance at least in, in my growing up and knowing of him, about who and why this was such a significant part of human history. And this film does this beautifully. I love the way that you lay this out and how you take us through not only his history, but also the impact of the land, the environment that they grew up in, they've grown up in, and how that has such an influence on, on what you described. It's, it's really beautifully done. One of the most important things that I heard in the film and saw in the film was the idea of this back and forth between the West and the East. This sort of his his empire became a facilitator of those things. Well, he you realize the Mongols conquered China from the Chinese. They not only got goods, you know, silks and everything else, but they also learned about that culture and absorbed that culture. That's why I'm fascinated by this country. It, and it's a little known country. I think people don't, you know, if you ask Americans where Mongolia is, I think they think it's south of Mexico, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, uh, and the, the possibilities, I mean, how many people will do travel 
now sort of, can I say post-COVID, do I dare? You know, I think tourism is going to pick up and people will have a chance to explore. But you know, this is not an easy country to travel around. The process of making the film, I would be in a four-wheel drive traveling, you know, six hours at a time on non-roads and you're just beaten to hell, you know, especially with an older four-wheel drive vehicle. I was sleeping, you know, with families. On the step, the Mongolians are very welcoming. They'll take you into their home. Not a lot of privacy because you're sleeping with usually three generations. As far as bathrooms go, well, you've got the the step. And I was sleeping in a tent right below below the snow line. So in April, there's still snow. it's, It's tough and I'm getting older and I'm a pretty tough guy. I was in the province of Bayan Ulgi, and that's sort of the Northwest, right up against the Kazakh border. And then when I came back to the town, I couldn't get out of bed and I was convinced I had picked up a flu or something. But it was, and I had a luncheon with the guide and my guide and his family. And I, how am I gonna make a luncheon? I couldn't even get out of bed. And, but by noon I was cured. And what it really was is just exhaustion being sort of beaten up from, from the travel. So it's, it's tough without roads. On the other hand, I love it because you don't see another human being yeah, unless you yeah. want to. Well, from what we see in the film, this expansive, you can, as far as the eye can see in any direction, it's either sort of a rolling hills or mountains and it is, it's spectacular. And well, again, I mean, that environment, the impact it's, it has had on those people, their ability to adapt, the fact that it was a nomadic country. And it, it, and it, what I find interesting is because of Genghis Khan and his conquest, it sort of rose up to be this world power. And then it, in some manner of speaking, it went back to a, a nation of nomads. And, and I can't think of a nation that fits that description to the degree that Mongolia does in the, on the world stage. Yes. Uh, by the way, the Mongolians weren't house builders. Yes. So they never built any buildings, edifices, nothing. Yeah. Uh, they lived and they were able to conquer. If you see Mongolian horses and you're going to see plenty of horses in this film, they're short legged. Stout. I don't know how to describe it, but they have enormous endurance. Right. And in in their building the empire and heading, you know, west and southwest, they they essentially moved with with their with their livestock and with on horseback. And these horses could really go huge distances, which you know are present day horses. You know, the sort of west you want to call them western horses don't have that kind of stamina. So they were, they're unusual looking horses. Yeah, you know, I, I'm very interested in animals. I was going to be a veterinarian at one point. And, uh, uh, well, they're almost like oversized Shetland ponies. Yes, yeah. I was going to say that. They're almost like big ponies. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, and there's something that, by the way, I'm going to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Robert H. Lieberman. He is the director of this wonderful documentary film called Echoes of the Empire Beyond Genghis Khan. It will be screening here in Los Angeles beginning on June 10th at the Lemley Monica Film Center, as well as to be determined more more screenings, not only here in Los Angeles, but around the country. It opens in Washington, D.C. on June 3rd at the Landmark 
Theater, East Street Cinema. So be looking for it. And if you go to echoesoftheempire.com, you can find out more about the film and about all the things that we're talking about. But Would one you, of the things you say, is, uh, go ahead. Let me add something. And that is we have a digital release coming on all platforms. And as soon as we finish theatrical, which will be mid-June or late June, uh, it'll be available to everybody around the world. So uh, it's, it's coming with wide release. Very good. There's something that is said at the very beginning of the film that I just I found, again, sort of sets the stage, but also puts a perception or perspective around the story. And that is nomadic lifestyle is, is the closest to nature of sort of the human experiences, the nom nomadic experience. I recently saw a documentary film probably about a year ago in which the premise of the documentary film is that human beings are predisposed to essentially um, migration, that the, the history of human beings is this, the history of migration. We are, that, that is what we do as a species. And this, the, and the Mongols, Mongolians are that in spades. They are truly of that, of that, you, you know, there are 10, they did a DNA study um, and you can look at the male part of the DNA, which is passed on. Yeah. Uh, there are more than 10 million Westerners who carry Mongolian DNA or in, in the common speak, basically uh, have Mongol blood. And people say, oh, it's Genghis Khan. It's not necessarily Genghis Khan, but somebody in his entourage. You know, I'm sure there were many babies made along the way. And there was one line that didn't die out. And yeah. so if you do, you know, 23andMe, you may be shocked to find out you're, you've got a little bit of Mongolian blood in you put a little bit of a historic frame around all of this. And that is, this was happening in the 13th century, more or less, the, yeah. the con conquest was were taking place. So we're talking the 1200s now, which again, the influence, I don't think the influence can be overstated in real life. Now, again, the historic perception of Genghis Khan in the West and maybe around the world as well is that this was sort of a blip on the radar of, of human history, but it was something that was much more. I just really want people to understand that. I'm sorry. Affecting yeah. our thinking today. And if you read Weatherford's book, I mean, that's really about it, about you know, the modern world and how it was impacted by Genghis Khan. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for bringing this to my attention. As I said before we got started, I had sort of a passing understanding of, of Mongolia through a other documentary film that I had seen, which really wasn't about Mongolia and really, but was kind of in reference to it and to the history. And I love the singing. I'm so attracted to the, to the form of singing. It's known as throat singing. I don't know if that's throughout Mongolia, but certainly that's what I'm, I know of it. Their Can music. I something? Um, yeah, yeah, please. One of the big surprises for me in filming there is music and the Who, H U, the yes. band in our film. It's yes. wonderful, catchy rock music. And there is just the, the normal long song, which is essentially the Mongolians 
on the step go out and imitate nature. They find the place. But what surprised me the most is they have world-class opera. And you'll hear it in the the movie. And world-class ballet. Now, the Russians killed 20,000 llamas. But on the other hand, they left behind the legacy of the arts. And so I was just blown away. I would, you know, I did a ton of filming of ballet and opera. Obviously, you couldn't fit this all into a 90-minute movie, but it was just, I was blown away. You know, Madame Butterfly, Capella, the ballet, uh, just, and the, the orchestras are great. The singing is good. The dancing is good. This is, you know, it's it's really, that's the big surprise for me of, of you know, so Mongolia has this ancient culture and it's very deeply rooted in the people, but there's also the modern aspects. And I think the Mongolians are trying to come to grips also with the environment. There is a problem and we deal with the two problems, the major problems. One is in the winter, the pollution, they burn the soft coal, the brown coal, especially in the Gur district, which surrounded, that's the yurts that surround Ulaanbaatar. And the other problem is desertification, the making the enlargement of desert. And this is happening because of goats. It turns out that when you buy goat wool, cashmere, it comes from goats. The market is hungry for cashmere. The cashmere is taken from the goats and much of it is sent to China where it's processed and made into sweaters. So I would, and the goats reproduce in a way that sheep don't. So I would urge your viewers to, instead of buying cashmere from Mongolia, buy the yak wool, the camel wool, and the sheep wool. And, but do support Mongolian wool. Uh, They have very fine products and you can get them here in the United States. Yeah. And I'll leave it to the viewers to see this in the film, but the description of the songs and what the utility of those songs meant to the nomadic peoples of Mongolia and how that plays out. Again, something else that is wonderful and beautiful and so humanizing to, to, to understand just how connected to the, to the earth and to their environment these people are. It's a beautiful, it's, thank you again, thank you for, for bringing this to my attention. The film again is called Echoes of the Empire Beyond Genghis Khan. And we've been talking with the director, Robert H. Lieberman. This is, again, thank you. And, and thank you so much for spending some time with us here on oh, Film Story. it's been fun. Hey, take care of yourself. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.